Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne journalists Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello, Zara McDonald. Hello, Michelle Andrews. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, do young people really lack resilience and are they in need of more hugs, as per Ida Butro's comments this week? Plus, Kanye and the intersection between mental illness and social media. But first, Michelle, how was your week? Ooh, how was my week? I'll be honest, I'm not super enjoying lockdown. I'm finding it way, way, way harder in 2.0 territory. I was going to say, we're not usually one to be completely doom and gloom because we said from the start of COVID that though we would touch on COVID, we would try to keep this a light space. But I think it would be remiss of us to not acknowledge that this is a pretty low time for Melbourne. I can't think of a lower time since probably this entire thing started for Melbourne. Like I am feeling particularly low about it. I think it's just dystopian to walk around and everyone is wearing a face mask. Nobody wants to pat each other's dogs anymore. Everyone's kind of like side eyeing each other and it's just not as warm as the first lockdown. I think with the first lockdown, there was a bit of novelty there. We're all like, this is shit, but at least it's something new and different and there are some upsides and maybe I'll pick up a hobby. Lockdown 2.0 is more like, fuck this, I'm sick of it. I want this to be done now. Yeah, and I think going for a drive to the supermarket or going for a walk to get some exercise is a really strange thing to do when you see everybody kind of walking around you in a mask. And I do think that there's an element of kind of hope to that visual too because hopefully it means that the spread is much less and there is a good thing to be said about wearing masks. But it's just, I always think, imagine if you had have told me six months ago that this is what I would be seeing or mm. this is what we would all be seeing. Like if you plucked me into July 2020 with no context, I wonder what I would have thought. I think that all yeah. the time. Literally when I was at the supermarket the other day, I saw the reflection of myself in a mirror in the vegetable aisle wearing my mask like with my basket. And I was like, if you went to 
Michelle in January 2020? Like if you went back to me on New Year's Day and said, this is where you'll be halfway throughout the year. You didn't go on your Europe trip. All these other plans were thrown into the air. You're in a supermarket wearing a mask and everyone else is wearing a mask. Figure it out. I'd be horrified. You wouldn't be able to. I said to um, someone the other day, if you're talking only six months ago, people were wearing masks because of smoke inhalation. Like think about how long ago that feels in Melbourne in particular. So thoughts are going out to everyone in Melbourne right now. I think it is is a really tough time. Like Mm. I think it feels monotonous and it is hard when the numbers are coming out and have been coming out for the last two weeks and they're still high and the death rate is high and the aged care system seems to be really affected by this, which is Mm. the last thing that we wanted with a virus as ruthless as this one so thoughts with you do you have a recommendation to lighten anyone's day yeah well I do want to say as well it's not like we're the most affected before I get on to my recommendation like we are not in the most vulnerable community so imagine those who are in those communities and have to live with all the things we are and on top of that feel paralytic fear every single day so our hearts go out to absolutely all of you whether you're in Melbourne or not my recommendation is a piggyback off your recommendation last week thank you you told the listeners and I to go watch the Clinton affair that is on SBS On Demand. It, of course, covers the story of Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky when she was his very, very young intern and he was the President of the United States. I went and watched it all in a couple of nights. I found it riveting and heart-shattering, to be honest, how Monica Lewinsky was treated by people and slut-shamed by everyone, not just right-leaning people, by Gloria Steinem in some columns. So, Mm vocal feminists were coming for this woman and slut shaming her and I was horrified to watch and after consuming that documentary and taking it all in I went and watched Monica Lewinsky's TED talk have you seen her TED talk I have I remember when it came out a couple of years ago and I think it was one of the first times that Monica Lewinsky had come back pretty much into the public consciousness in a way that wasn't so completely tied to her affair with Clinton and we could see her as kind of her own person yeah her own entity it's called the price of shame and it is a riveting wrenching watch on youtube i really highly recommend it i'm also just so sad that monica Lewinsky went through that i'm actually really surprised i don't know if this is flippant of me to say i'm surprised she's alive that one person could withstand that amount of bullying from what felt like the entire world yeah no i think it's something i thought and said consistently through watching that series is that no human is built to withstand the kinds of things that she managed to withstand and I am just in awe of how she managed to get through it and not just get through it but she's thriving now like she's a brilliant storyteller she's incredibly smart she's doing a lot of brilliant work around anti-bullying so the more of us that get around that now I think I think we owe it to her it's the fucking least we can do absolutely and Bill Clinton did not come across well let me put it that way if you guys haven't watched it yet tell me about your week how are you yeah no much the same as you I think that there is a real sense of kind of monotony around lockdown 2.0 but I've been like I said still consuming a lot of stuff to try and distract myself and I listened to a really great episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day yes where she interviewed Bernadine of Aristo and were her questions better or worse than mine I have (laughs) well I have to say Elizabeth Day also got a comment that was like oh I haven't been asked that before and you but Elizabeth Day didn't act chill either she was like oh well I'm done then (laughs) for those who are confused by the way Bernadine Everisto is of course the author of Girl Woman Other that was of course the first book club book pick we chose it was our June book I interviewed Bernadine in that episode of Shameless Book Club so this is why I'm feeling competitive with (laughs) Elizabeth Day now but it was just a really beautiful chat obviously recorded remotely like almost every podcast is being 
being recorded at the moment. But Bernadine is just such a delight and spoke a lot about how it took her such a long time for her writing to be recognised in a way that she always hoped it would. Mm. And I think Elizabeth Day asked Bernadine Evaristo, did you consider giving up writing? And she said, I think anyone who was writing for as long as I did without many book sales or recognition would have given up a long time ago, especially with very little money that you're earning from it. So it's just a really incredible interview. They speak a lot about inequality in publishing, particularly in the UK, about how, you know, publishing is being called out hugely at the moment, as it should be for failing to publish black writers. Mm. And um, there's just so much goodness in the chat. So listen to it. Absolutely. Go listen to that. Those two are such crackers. Now we have the mailbag. Do we have any messages that we want to play out this week? We do, Mish. We have a listener who wanted to have a quick chat about our episode with Julia Gillard last week. Hi, Zara and Michelle. I just wanted to drop in and say how much I loved your interview with Julia Gillard. I loved how Gillard explained why she tried not to get emotional during her fierce misogyny speech. I felt her frustration towards the reaction and really unfair standard that we as a society hold towards women leaders being emotional. I think it's such a problematic bias because often female leaders like Gillard show us the power that comes from being emotional in the form of compassion and empathy for the people that they're representing. I really, really loved the chat and love all the work you guys do each week. Bye. That was actually one of my favourite parts of the interview as well. I think that comparison between women's tears and men's tears and what we read into both is so telling and I think it's a very specific example but one that tells a lot about the whole sphere of women leadership. When I heard her tell that anecdote I couldn't not think of Kevin Rudd Mm. losing his leadership and crying through the entire press conference and it was he was really celebrated at the time for being emotional and caring very deeply about his job and it's in such stark contrast to how she felt she had to approach that press conference those two stark examples were huge for me I would recommend anyone to go and find that speech again we'll pop it in our show notes her last parting speech because you can really see it in her face when she's trying to hold it together and it's an incredibly powerful watch absolutely agree and thank you to everyone for your feedback on that episode. We are so glad you enjoyed it as much as we did. That is honestly such a career highlight for us to be able to have Julia on the show. On to more frivolous things, Zara. Before we get into the first segment of today, I want to issue you a challenge. Yes. I am the reigning champion of the shameless podcast Meme War of 2019. Of course, it was the first year we've ever done a Meme War. I want to challenge you to the 2020 Meme War. It is time one year later for me to hold on to my crown once again and cement my spot as the superior meme overlord of Shameless. For those who haven't been around for a year... Hey, welcome. Last year, um, I said on this podcast, and I say it pretty often, that Michelle very rarely lets me post anything on Instagram because she thinks that my taste in memes is a little too niche. And so she kind of stopped letting me have access to her Instagram account about a year and three months ago. <laughs> so after that, we did a meme war to see if my memes were really celebrated. I didn't win, so I am still the underdog. <laughs> so if anyone wants to send me memes, help me out, you no. know where I am. Yeah. Well, fine. If you want to do it that way, you and all the shameless listenership can go together and I'll just win all on my Fine. own. You know what? Me and that entire shameless <laughs> listenership versus you. So nobody send Michelle memes. <laughs> just come to my inbox. I know what's going to happen because what happened last time is I was overwhelmed. I've never seen more <laughs> memes being sent to me in my life. Please send me your best meme. Don't send me more than one. Just send me your number one <laughs> meme because otherwise I'm never
never going to find the quality ones. For those wondering how the fuck does a meme war work, it's a great question. And look, it's not like we have a clearly defined list of rules written down somewhere, but these are the mutually understood terms of agreement, I would say, Zara. First of all, you can't disclose when you're posting who has shared what meme. That is a rule? It's a rule, but you can kind of do a bit of a (laughs) wink-wink. I can give you kind of SOS signals and I will be giving you SOS signals through my memes. What happens if I try and like trick them all though and I also pretend to be you? I could do the same. (laughs) So we will try to make sure that the memes are as anonymous as possible. There will be one meme shared from each of us for five days in a row. So starting today, Monday, until Friday, we each share a meme. And then across the week, we figure out the median from each person. Someone will get the crown. I hope it is me again. I hope it is me too. Shall we get into the show? Absolutely. We are starting with the chairwoman of the ABC, Ida Buttrose, implying or explicitly saying that young people are tiny little snowflakes who need one big massive cuddle. Yeah, so for those who missed the story this week, this was a story that came out in the Sydney Morning Herald from Latika Burke. And essentially the story was Ida Buttrose addressing a panel and saying the following. It seems to me that today's younger workers, they need much more reassurance and they need to be thanked, which is something many companies don't do. They're very keen on being thanked that they almost need hugging. You have to understand that they seem to lack the resilience I remember from my younger days. Uh. She also went on to say whether that's because of bad parenting, I don't know, and I don't want to go down that path and offend young parents, but I am an older parent and we older parents have very set views about resilience and, you know, I think it's something we need to foster in everybody from a young age. I think some other important context here is that she made the comments to the Australia-United Kingdom Chamber of Commerce on Wednesday. She was also speaking under the Chatham House rule. So for those who don't know what Chatham House rules are, it basically means that anyone attending an event like that one can report on what was said, but they can't identify who said the comments. Mm. So what's actually happened here is somebody has leaked these comments and who said them to the SMH and the Age. The SMH and the Age didn't attend, but were leaked those comments and reported on it because they weren't there. Bit of a loophole. Exactly. I think a lot. there is still a bit of commentary on Twitter saying, oh gosh, like she probably shouldn't have been identified. But that said, she still said the comments. And I think this is why she said them in the way that she did is because she was speaking probably a little bit more freely than she would on television or on radio or in an interview. Absolutely. Now, I'm a little bit disappointed and I don't want to like laugh and mock the comments from Ida Buttrose because she is something of an Australian icon. I mean, this is a woman who was the founding editor of Clio, which was one of the highest circulated magazines aimed at women our age back in the day. It was also on the forefront of talking frankly about women's sexuality and women's empowerment. Of course, it had its issues like all magazines at that time did as well. She was then editor of the Australian Women's Weekly and of course now chairwoman of the ABC. So I don't want to disrespect Ida in what I say. I'm sure she thinks I'm an entitled young piece of shit anyway. To be, <laughs> to be fair, you always need a hug. She also made a really interesting point. She said the younger workers lack more transparency and said that this was in stark contrast to when she was a journalist. She said that not hearing from her bosses like Frank Packer was a good thing because no news means good news. I thought this was a really, really odd comment to make just weeks after the ABC had to sack 250 
staff, which are a huge portion of whom were young workers and millennials. Of course, young workers are going to demand transparency from their workplace, not least because it's a public broadcaster. So mm. I think they deserve transparency. But I think when the media landscape is that precarious... We're in the middle of a pandemic. Of course, you're going to demand that you know what your job security looks yeah. like or what the shape of your kind of workplace looks like in the 100%. coming months and years. I just thought that was a really odd comparison to make, that she came up the ranks as a journalist at a time when the media was a huge industry with a lot of money and job security didn't look anything like it looks like now. I mean, she just said her boss had the surname Packer. It's a very different it's set of circumstances scary. now, particularly for those at the ABC, which is why I loved a tweet from Marigula Amin. She wrote, what a slap in the face as a millennial reporter for ABC News to read these comments. It's not hugs that make us dedicate our lives to journalism in the current climate. It's resilience. And I'm quite frankly tired of lazy, inaccurate tropes. Boom. I love that. That is so, so incredibly true. And I think the key to what annoys me about Ida Buttrose's comments is this quote here. She wrote, you have to understand that they, she's referring to young people, seem to lack the resilience that I remember from my younger days. I think the key that we need to unlock this entire debacle is that the resilience that I remember. I think what Ida Buttrose is ignoring is a long running phenomenon where humans remember their generation and their childhood completely differently to how it actually happened. This is explained really well in a quote from Brian Resnick in Vox. He wrote this article late last year. The kids these days trope is an ancient form of remonstration going back to antiquity and probably earlier. It's a cycle we're doomed to repeat. In that sense, Zara, you and I will probably one day be 78 like Ida Buttrose and make these comments about the younger generation because we are programmed to think more idyllically of our own generations than those that come after us. Yeah, and probably inflate our own struggles or our own sense of resilience, right? Sophie McNeil, who has just left the ABC but worked at the ABC for a number of of years tweeted, like resilience, how insulting. Us millennials at the ABC were usually paid less but expected to do so much more than many of our older colleagues, plus many are on insecure contracts for years. Ida Buttrose clearly needs to go and meet some of them. ABC colleagues aren't beating around the bush here, like they are so more than happy to kind of pull their chair up on their thoughts and their feelings about this. I wondered too, because the reporting around this and the inference with Ida Buttrose is we're talking about quote unquote millennials here. Mm. And I think when we're talking about the trope of millennials being lazy, I get really confused because the age bracket of millennials is quite wide. Are we talking about us at 26 or are we talking about a worker who is 39? Mm. Because we are all millennials and I think a lot of the eye rolling initially about really broad statements about millennials comes from the misunderstanding of what age a millennial actually is. Yeah, I think the term millennial has been detached from its actual meaning. People yeah. now use millennial to refer to 15-year-olds or 20-year-olds when that is not a millennial. That's not a millennial at all. But we've kind of coined such negative connotations with this word that as soon as someone thinks young people and lazy, the word millennial comes up. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think it's interesting also and important to know that this is not the first time Ida Buttrose has made these comments. Last year, she was on another panel and she said, creative people, the kind of people who work at the ABC, are very sensitive people. You've got to understand <laughs> that. That's why they do the sort of things that they do. So they're a little more fragile than some workers. They have to be patted a bit and reassured that all is well. I find this idea of kind of, quote unquote, lacking resilience or being fragile really interesting because I feel like what it does is it hints to workers complaining too much and speaks mm. to unrest maybe. 
to me, it speaks to two things, right? I think it speaks to workers understanding their rights more than ever, especially in a, a precarious industry and a fickle industry, which is really important that we understand our rights as workers and demanding them. But also I think it speaks to a generation that has empathy. And mm. I don't know if that's too much of a reach, but I think young workers have more empathy and more compassion than the world than almost anyone else because of the world that they've grown up in. And I think that this necessarily kind of manifests in demanding better of management and consistently asking for those things, whether it's diversity and inclusion or something else. I think that this idea that they lack resilience is being confused with potentially having empathy for the world around them. Totally. And having the ability to speak up about it when historically the average worker hasn't had that power. Jenna Price actually wrote a really good piece in the Canberra Times this week about Ida's comments. And I I don't know if you read it, Mish, but one of my favourite quotes from hers was, resilience is great when it's your parents who teach you to get up after you've fallen over or to have another go on the bike or on the roller skates. It's less good when your bosses use it to get you to deal with a work environment that is insecure, underfunded, chaotic. Resilience is just a word used by management to make you feel as if you can't cope when it's really that managers are managing badly. Resilience used in a work context is bewildering. And I think this is something that we haven't yet touched on, this idea that you need to be resilient in a workplace that could be quite toxic. Yeah, and I think so many young people are finding themselves in toxic workplaces. And I would have said that when we were doing this podcast in 2018 and 2019, but particularly today, I listened to an episode of The Briefing this morning that talked about how many workplaces across the country are rotting JobKeeper payments, are making young people work longer hours, are making people bend backwards in a way that is completely illegal. And there is a skyrocketing number of complaints about the way workplaces are treating young people. To say that this is a problem of our own making or to say it is a problem that we are concocting in our heads is so insulting. And it does make me question, is Ida Buttrose the right person to be chairwoman of the ABC? Yeah, well, exactly. I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking at the moment. I remember reading these comments and thinking straight away to a time that we, in our past jobs, have received emails telling the entire workplace that they lack resilience, for lack of a better word, Mm. that they kind of need to toughen up, for lack of a better word, when in reality, the workplace itself was systemically troubled. Yeah. And I thought, I hadn't thought about that at the time, that when there is unrest in a workplace and when workers are starting to demand more and ask for more because they realise they're not being treated well, the onus is automatically put on the entire hundreds of staff to be told, you're not handling this very well, you're being a bit prissy. It's a great way to gaslight your employees to think that they are the problem, not that the fish rots at the head, which is what we know, a fish rots at the head at the company. Exactly. I've got one last quote that I wanted to read out. I've got a quote too. You go first. Great. I've got one from academic Amy Tunig who wrote, millennials watched a live terrorist attack broadcast on TV while we were tweens and teens, graduated our trades and uni degrees in a major global recession, face precarious employment and live in an era where even double incomes, it's near impossible to purchase a home. Also, do you really want to throw stones about who needs hugging? We aren't the generation who struggled to show healthy physical affection to our friends or say, I love you to our kids. Millennials are also open about the benefits of therapy and we give a shit about the environment. Wow. That is a banger quote. It is entirely different to the one I want to finish on. I love that so much. This is just for anyone listening who thinks that today's generation is in fact worse than their generation. 
This is a quote from a Greek poet and academic Hesiod in the 8th century BC. Quite different. (laughs) I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent on frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was young, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but the present youth are exceedingly disrespectful and impatient of restraint. And that was from the The 8th century BC. Incredible (laughs) stuff. We're we're doomed. (laughs) Thank you, next bitch. And now it is time for the quick and dirty, as always, Zara, Alice, fine-footed, beach hero, McDonald. Ooh. Oh, no. Raging hottie. Raging hottie McDonald Thank should have you. been in there, a la Tommy Little. What have you got for me today? My first story, the first The Bachelor teaser is here and it sounds like Lockie is going to put a ring on it. That is from Punky. <sighs> Let's play a little snippet from this trailer, shall we? Ring me done a lot of crazy things in my life. Jumping off of mountains, jumping from buildings, scuba diving through a shipwreck. But being The Bachelor, it's the craziest thing I've ever done. Please like me. I am trying to keep an open mind about this season, but ever since we sat down with Brooke Jowett, who used to date Lockie, the now Bachelor, I just can't see him as a great guy to date. I'm sorry, he's a little bit tarnished for me. It, well, it's completely fair. We did sit down with Brooke Jowett, and for anyone who hasn't listened to that episode, now might be a good time to go and <laughs> yeah. find it in our archives. This trailer was the most classic Bachelor trailer I've ever seen. First, oh, yes. Firstly, one thing I want to say is I think COVID might actually, although it's halted filming for a little bit and they struggled to kind of work out when the series was going to be dropped, I feel like it's been such a lifetime since Survivor finished and that controversy broke about him kind of just quickly not telling Brooke that they weren't <laughs> dating anymore and him going on the show that a lot of people might actually have forgotten Yeah, because so much has happened in the world. Second to that, I do want to speak to that trailer that we just played. Don't you think that every single trailer of The Bachelor ever – they paint The Bachelor as a really adventure, outdoorsy guy with a tough exterior and what a soft heart that? who, like, wants to talk about love and goosebumps. It's like the time they referred to Richie exclusively as a rope access technician and made out like he was in the most daredevil job in the history of the world. Because apparently, according to The Bachelor, our ideal guy is this, like, macho masculine guy on the outside but a real teddy bear on the inside. Big softy on the inside. So they're really trying to amp up the big softy thing for Lockie because I think the press around him was so terrible when he was announced as Bachelor that he wants to put a ring on it. And I think that's a very deliberate drop from the start, right? Oh, that God, he's yeah. here in this for the long haul, not to just do some dating and... <laughs> not to dump Brooke and then get some sweet, sweet Instagram followers out of it. Exactly. So how do, when does it launch? Do I know? believe it will launch shortly after Batch in Paradise. Batch in Paradise fans like me will know, I think we're going into week three now. It normally goes to four or five weeks. I would say this will premiere in two to three weeks. All right. Watch this space. My second story, Nicki Minaj is expecting her first child and her reveal is peak Nicki Minaj. That is from Vogue Australia. Very exciting. Nicki Minaj is pregnant. Yeah, congratulations to Nicki Minaj. These were peak Nicki Minaj, these photos. I mean, I saw them. They do remind me, I think, Nicki Minaj's pregnancy photo where she is kind of crouching down in beautiful lingerie. Her bra is covered in flowers and she's kind of turned to the side cradling her baby bump that reminded me of Beyonce's pregnancy and 
announcement when she was pregnant with her twins. And then once I did some Googling to compare the two of those, I realised it's also a very similar pregnancy announcement to Cardi B, who did basically the same thing as well. So this is the trend, posing to the side, cradling your bump, kneeling on the floor. And a bit of floral arrangement somewhere in there. Some flowers is always ideal. There's definitely a trendy colour scheme and vibe (laughs) with regards to the celebrity baby announcement at the moment. How would you announce a baby? I mean, I I will always love the way that Zoe Foster Blake announced her pregnancy with Rudy. She she parodied Beyonce. Oh yeah. Do you not remember this? No, I do now. That feels like a lifetime ago. And boy, what a photo it was. My third story, Folklore Reviewed. Did Taylor Swift just drop her best album to date? That is from the Herald Sun. Michelle, what do we think? We think the hype is absolutely 100% bang on. I'm in total agreement. I think this is her best album to date. And I know, I mean, I said this to my boyfriend Mitch this week, over the weekend, and he turned to me and goes, you think everything Taylor Swift has just released is her best thing to date. But with Folklore, I think I'm right. And I think I'm right because all the critics seem to agree with Mizara. It is pretty critically acclaimed, isn't it? I have to say, I can never really recover from Red. I will never, ever recover from that album and nothing will ever overtake it. That said, it's a very easy album to listen to, isn't it? Like it's Mm. a really kind of mellow, quite emotional set of tracks, which made me think that is there something deeper going on? Because I wondered straight away if she was going through a breakup because everything's so sad. I mean, you've said this to me. We were basically listening to it at the same time in our separate houses and sending texts back and forth about the songs we did and didn't like and our thoughts overall. I mean, I like every single song on the album. You think this is potentially a breakup album. I don't think that at all. I think she intentionally, when she released this, she issued a statement about the record saying, this is a tale of stories of people that I've never met, some who I have met, friends, acquaintances, people that I've imagined in my head. I think she intentionally told her fan base that to kind of squash any rumours that might come about. Because there are songs on here that talk about cheating, that talk about a whole range of stuff that I don't think is a personal experience for her. Well, this is what I found really interesting because she did issue that statement before she released the album to quash speculation because she knew that speculation was going to come. I just don't know if I necessarily believe it. Like, it seems like a pretty convenient way to explain a whole album that's very sad. I desperately hope it's not true. Like, I desperately Mm. hope it's not true, and I desperately hope her and Joe Alwyn are still together. But that said, to write 16 songs that are pretty mellow and pretty sad, I just wonder where you're drawing that experience from, genuinely. Also, (laughs) when you screenshot or watch, sorry, when you're um, listening to it on Spotify, you know on Spotify they have, like, the little graphic behind each song. Yeah, it's almost like a 10 second video. Yeah, exactly. The graphic that they've filmed is her like drowning in this lake and she's just, she is swimming towards this piano and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's such a, the piano was her life raft in quarantine after she went through a breakup. Zara. I'm the oracle. It was, They're not going through a breakup. There are even screenshots and recordings of Joe Alwyn saying that he was living in lockdown with Taylor Swift and her cats in April. This record was written in April. I just do not believe that they would be living together at the same time they're apparently going through this really cataclysmic breakup. It's a beautiful album, best ever. I'm obsessed with it. What is your favourite song? Um, I really love, is it called, I mean, I hate doing this because I actually never know the full names of the songs. The American Dynasty one? Yep, yep, yep. The Last Great American Dynasty. Also Exile with Bonnevere. Exile, I really liked. 
As soon as I listened to Exile, I thought it sounded remarkably like something that should have been on A Star Is Born. Ooh, I agree Huge with Bradley that. Cooper, Lady Gaga vibes. Yes. Huge. Once it's in your head and you listen to the song, you'll be like, I can literally imagine both of these performing it on A Star Is Born. <laughs> My fourth story, Ziggy Alberts issues further statement following anti-mask backlash. That is from Music Feeds. And Mish, <sighs> this story was one of the biggest stories locally this week. Yeah, it was. And I want to be careful with how I talk about it because I don't have any family members who were affected by the Holocaust. And I know that that is such a random sentence to come out before I give context here, but I think it needs to be given. Ziggy Elberts, who is a singer down in Australia and a very popular one at that, Zara, we actually listened to his music while writing our book. It was on our playlist. And he issued a statement this week that kind of insinuated that his grandparents living under Nazi rule in Holland was a similar or relatable experience to Melburnians now being asked to wear face masks. And I'm not the only one who drew that parallel. No, no, he definitely was drawing that parallel. He was also drawing a parallel between wearing face masks or the mandate that we have to wear face masks with his mother and her family fleeing Hungary as a child to escape communism. So there was just a lot going on in these posts But he did have to backtrack because there was so much backlash. Obviously, the fact that we are all wearing masks, as we touched on at the start of the episode, is a sign of hope that we all are coming together to try and really desperately halt the spread of this virus that Mm. could kill so many people if we let it. When he backtracked, he specified that it was the potential for punishment of people who don't comply with wearing a mask that he had an issue with, which I still find a little bit illogical. He also said, I think we should implement masks as a recommendation as opposed to a law with fines or offences that it imposes. He then also asserted, Mish, that he wasn't in a position to give medical advice, even though he's kind of suggesting medical advice. Yeah. And then said, there are citizens who are truly at risk from this virus and they need our support during this time and into the future. So a lot of mixed messages going on. I think it was really incredible how a lot of people did kind of pull him up on this straight away. Bridget Hustwaite did some really important stuff on her Instagram stories mm. saying this is just not good enough. I've met Ziggy Elberts a couple of times through my job. He's a nice guy. We get along, but it's still not good enough for him to be sharing this stuff. Yeah, I guess where my confusion comes from, and I have loved ones who don't want to be wearing masks and are open about that, and I guess where my confusion with them and with anyone who is so upset about being forced to wear a mask comes from is that I just think it's a compassionate, loving thing to do. I think, yes, people are still doing research into exactly how much it protects the community, but I think any level of protection is worth it given that wearing a mask is a pretty small level of investment that you have to make. I don't think it is really impinging on your human rights. I don't think it is impinging on your ability to operate throughout the world. So I don't understand the complaints and I don't think there's been an argument so far that has made me even slightly budge away from my current stance, which is that you should be wearing a face mask if you are going to potentially protect a vulnerable person in your community there is absolutely no argument for not wearing one you should put one on and even if it's a one percent chance of making people safer why wouldn't you take it yeah and this is obviously of course not including the people who for health reasons cannot wear a mask that should go without saying but for the people who have complete ability to wear masks and aren't impinged beyond you know just having something on your face then yes you should be wearing them anyway my fifth story Low stakes, hot take. This is from Man Repeller, by the way. No, I will not lend you my book. 
I know this is a weird news story, but it was an opinion <laughs> this week that I wanted to include because I saw it shared in our book club, Shameless Podcast Book Club. And I thought, isn't this an interesting hot take? I love their series, Low Stakes Hot Take. I haven't heard of this, but this is a great one, Low Stakes Hot Take. Is this a passive-aggressive way of you telling me that I owe you a book back or something? No, I was affronted by this op-ed because people lend me books and I never give them back. The thing I feel bad about, and I, I, I was affronted by this because there was a line in this story and everyone was debating it in our book club. There was a line in this story that said, don't ask me why, but this is where your most trusted friends, life partners, third date (laughs) attendees, and the woman who gave birth to you all become thieves and liars. It's so true. It's so true. You never get your books back. And I kind of understand why people don't want to lend me their books. You lent me a book recently, which I actually haven't read yet. And I I put it, I accidentally got it caught in like a puddle and now the whole thing is wet. And I was like, why do I do this? I want to care for people's things and yet I just break them. (laughs) I mean, it's such a funny one, right? Because once you read a book, it's pretty rare that you'll then go back through and read that book again. But there is something so wholesome and lovely about looking at my bookshelf and being able to reflect on the books that I've loved and that I've enjoyed and that I've learned different things from. There is a very specific kind of joy that people get from hoarding books and having like a glittering, colourful collection in their homes, is there not? I mean, I am kind of of the belief that once a book is done, I don't need it around me. So I'm happy to give away my books and never see them again. And that's probably why I don't take as much care with other people's books Mm. because I am in the mindset that, well, it's been read, do you need it back? Which is not a good way to live my life. But I think you're either a person who doesn't care about that or does. It did kill me when I lent you Heartburn by Nora Ephron and didn't see it again for about a year and 10 months. That's because my (laughs) mum ended up kidnapping it and told me about a year and 10 months later that she had your book and she felt terrible. She did, for any listener who is concerned, return Heartburn with a block of chocolate to say sorry. So thank you for that, Trish McDonald. It's also the smallest book ever and it took her ages to read it, but that's for another time. (laughs) Hey, that's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, what the Kanye West story tells us about the intersection between mental health and social media. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Just a heads up, this next segment will detail instances of mental breakdowns and suicidal ideation and may be triggering to some listeners. This week, a tweet from Aussie columnist Osman Faruqi about Kanye West stayed with us long after we hit like. The tweet read, Watching someone's mental health deteriorate rapidly in real time is one of the strangest and most disturbing things about this platform. Thinking of Kanye and his family, take care, bro. Following seven days of erratic behaviour, all of which played out in front of the eyes of millions of people, we want to have a conversation about the intersection of mental health breakdowns, social media and celebrity. But before we do that, Mish, let's give the listeners a bit of context. A lot has happened since we sat down to record last week's episode. Yeah, it kind of feels weird listening back to last week's Quick and Dirty. I mean, we were kind of joking around that maybe Kim Kardashian should pull Kanye to the side and say, let's not run for 2020, let's try for 2024. And I think last week when we did record that, it was still something that was up in the air. Like there were rumours that maybe he was struggling, but mostly people were saying this is just Kanye at his creative, most flippant best. And he's just kind of running with whatever he feels like right now. But 
Unfortunately, the last week has undeniably shown that there is a darker reason bubbling under the surface. So over the last week, we of course had his very first campaign rally. And at that rally, he sobbed in front of his crowd of fans. He had the numbers 2020 shaped into the back of his head. He was wearing a bulletproof army vest and he told everyone very intimate personal details about him and Kim Kardashian's personal life and most notably the revelation that he put pressure on Kim Kardashian to terminate their pregnancy with their now daughter Northwest. He screamed out to the crowd, I almost killed my daughter and went on to pledge that women who want to have abortions should be given $1 million to keep their pregnancies instead. Unfortunately, the situation only went from bad to worse from there, Zara, for the remainder of the week. Kanye West bunkered down in his Wyoming ranch and from there his Twitter activity became more erratic and sometimes incoherent. So among other things, Kanye West alleged Kim Kardashian West was trying to lock him up. He said that he was looking into getting a divorce. He slut-shamed her at various points for doing photo shoots with Playboy and for posing naked. He also said he would never let his children pose for Playboy. And then finally, he also labelled his mother-in-law, Chris Jenner, Chris Jong-un. On Sunday morning, our time, Kanye West did apologise for this behaviour. He wrote on Twitter, I would like to apologise to my wife, Kim, for going public with something that was a private matter. I did not cover her like she has covered me. To Kim, I want to say, I know I hurt you. Please forgive me. Thank you for always being there for me. All of this in mind, Zara, uh, actually a couple of days before that apology, Kim Kardashian felt compelled to put out her first ever statement on her husband's mental illness. Yeah, so Kim Kardashian jumped on Instagram and posted a series of stories that read like the following. As many of you know, Kanye has bipolar disorder. Anyone who has this or has a loved one in their life who does knows how incredibly complicated and painful it is to understand. I've never spoken publicly about how this has affected us at home because I am very protective of our children and Kanye's right to privacy when it comes to his health. But today I feel like I should comment on it because of the stigma and misconceptions about mental health. I understand Kanye is subject to criticism because he is a public figure and his actions at times can cause strong opinions and emotions. She went on to say he is a brilliant but complicated person who on top of the pressures of being an artist and a black man who experienced the painful loss of his mother and has to deal with the pressure and isolation that is heightened by his bipolar disorder. Those who are close with Kanye know his heart and understand his words sometimes do not align with his intentions. It's interesting, Mitch, because as far as I saw anyway, this set of Instagram stories were pretty widely shared Mm. as graceful and thoughtful and compassionate and important. Mm. And it was even more interesting because remember, you shared something on our Instagram a couple of days ago, which was a tweet that went viral earlier in the week. I think at the time that we shared it, it had something like 23,000 retweets. And the tweeter wrote, Kim Kardashian needs to protect her fucking children. Do they know how damaging it will be when Northwest grows up and sees what Kanye said about her? This is disturbing. Mm. So in the wake of being criticised for not doing more, she clarified that in her statement by saying, the family is powerless unless the member is a minor. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. Um, I think uh, in general, it's a sad story, but I think as well for 
someone going through this to then have the added pressure on top of them that they are somehow responsible or they're not doing enough to help their partner. It's really interesting. We actually had a bit of back and forth with one doctor who listens to Shameless and she said the laws in America are very different to the um, rules here in Australia, that in Australia we do have a crisis assessment team, we have a CAT team where you can, if someone is a danger to themselves or to others, involuntarily admit them to hospital and apparently in the US it's not the same that if Kanye West does not want to go to hospital and does not want to accept that he's mentally ill Kim Kardashian is powerless and I think it's really important people understand that the way we live here and the I guess rules and restrictions that govern how we behave and how we handle these situations here are not the same for her over there. Yeah absolutely and there was a tweet from a writer from Refinery29 called Jessica Morgan and she tweeted out Kim's response and wrote as someone who has bipolar disorder I want to thank Kim Kardashian for this dignified respectful and compassionate statement about her husband Kanye. Bipolar is complicated it's exhausting and it is misunderstood the stigma must stop the shaming headlines must stop. What we wanted to do today on the back of that tweet, Mish, is we put a call out on our Instagram from our listeners to say and to ask them, what's your experience with mental health or the intersection between mental health and social media? Yeah, that's the thing. This experience is such a unique and harrowing one. And we wanted to ask you guys, we haven't been through it with our loved ones or personally ourselves. So we want to be able to tell your stories. Zara, let's start with this listener. We have beeped out her name. She has experienced a breakdown online herself. Good morning, Mission Zara. So quick bit of background. My name's and in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with a mental health disorder with the name Borderline Personality Disorder. Before that diagnosis, a lot of my life was played out online via the channels of Facebook and Instagram. Looking back, it was very clear to, to me, probably anyone else looking at my pages, I was extremely unwell. You know, changing my hair colour, my style every other day, unstable relationships, posting relationship updates, you know, losing drastic amounts of weight, unashamedly using drugs and alcohol. Um, and, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I was very, very unwell. People looked at my photos and looked at my videos and looked at my status updates as a form of, I think, reality TV show entertainment. I thought that was really interesting, Mish, her last line, which said I was looked at like I was reality television entertainment because I think when we're talking about the comparison of how we're looking at Kanye right now, it's it's hard to separate him from the fact that his family are reality television stars and it's a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, and it's troubling. I think what I see in my mind when I think of Kanye West or I think of anyone going through this experience, whether you have 100 million followers or you have 100 followers, is that effectively you're in the middle of a stadium at your most vulnerable, your weakest, your absolute lowest ebb probably of your life and you have a stadium full of people watching on. And they're not just watching on, like they're filming it and screenshotting it, do you know what I mean? And and keeping it forever, like they're keeping records of it. Yeah, and I think I mean, I don't have um, a mental illness like the ones that we're exploring today, like BPD or like bipolar disorder, but I definitely know that when I'm having an anxiety attack, I often write things like it's I think when you're at your lowest point mentally sometimes that is unfortunately when you feel most creative or you feel most emotional and the most willing to let that out in some form of art and so many times on my own Instagram page I have published things that I then later archive like the number of times I've written mid panic attack about panic attacks and then taken that off because I'm so embarrassed about it after I think it's a really unique 
experience to have a mental illness and have a mental illness in 2020 when you can immediately write and tweet about it when you might not be in the mental space to do so like if I go to my Instagram page now none of those things exist but you're right that permanency does live on and it can be damaging and embarrassing to the people at the heart of it I want to read out one DM from another listener who we will also keep anonymous. She wrote, My best friend has been manic on social media before, most recently about a year and a half ago, where she would upload lots of Instagram stories to the full capacity of what Instagram allows you to upload in a single day and make a string of new accounts. To me, it turns her struggle into a spectacle and has been a huge source of embarrassment for her when she's recovering from an episode but feels like she needs to go back through and delete everything and reply to people. Because of social media, there's a trail of the event and a permanence to it that isn't helpful. On the other hand, though, social media is a functional resource that gives me and her loved ones the ability to work out where she is and relay important safety information to her mum. All of us now notice her patterns with social media and a few of us actually picked up on her most recent episode within a week of it starting, which we wouldn't have been able to do without it. I think that's a really interesting perspective because, yes, as this listener has written to us and said, like most of the time it's a really damaging thing that we are able to have this trail. But also it's not all bad that for friends and family who are desperate to support, you kind of do have an insight into what they're going through more than what you would if social media didn't exist. I also wanted to read one from another listener that we will keep anonymous who wrote to us and said, I absolutely feel for the Kardashian West family in this situation. I have an older brother with schizophrenia and the earliest sign of him not taking medication or having an episode are the posts he shares on social media. It always starts as paranoia but quickly turns to abuse on our family or the people close to him. You learn not to take it personally but it doesn't get easier. Every episode feels like a grieving process. Unfortunately, mental health wards and departments are inundated and sufferers don't get the help that they deserve. I can only hope funding, awareness and support increases. Yeah, we have one more voicemail before we move on and we give you more of our own thoughts. This is from another shameless listener who called our hotline. Hey, Mission Zara. I thought that I would call in because I have quite a bit of experience with the mental health system and quite a few family members who have suffered from severe mental illness. My late mother had severe schizophrenia and I have another close family member with bipolar disorder who has experienced mania. So I do really sympathize with Kim and the kids and the rest of the family and friends because it's super challenging. I remember my mum having breakdowns play out online and kind of airing her thoughts on her Facebook page that were incoherent to the rest of us. And it was really traumatizing for me being so young because I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed about what people would say about me and my family, but I was also terrified about my mum being bullied and people being nasty to her. So it's really, really hard. And I know how hard the battle is with trying to help someone and get someone professional help who doesn't think that they are sick, which is a big part of bipolar and schizophrenia often. Not all, but a lot of the time they don't feel unwell. So it's a really challenging experience and there needs to be more education out there, a bit more empathy and understanding as well. I want to touch on the empathy element of that voicemail that was brought up at the very, very end. I know that listener was talking about empathy in general for everyone, but I want to make it more specific to empathy for Kanye West and Kim Kardashian West in this particular instance, Zara, because something that I found really interesting this week is that 
I think our listeners and the community in general probably sit in two camps or maybe three camps. There are the people who really care, who feel like this is a really troubling story to see, who are very, very concerned about seeing someone's mental illness play out online. There is a camp that probably just look at it as it is and don't feel much about it. And then there's a camp that is incredibly cynical, that thinks everything the Kardashians do is eventually a publicity stunt. They link Kanye's Twitter activity, his presidential campaign with the fact that he is now releasing an album over the weekend. And they say that this is all for more attention. Yeah, it's a really hard one to swallow, isn't it? I think the more that's been released, I think the more that that final camp becomes a minority, but I think it still is there because of just that that really pervasive Kardashian stunt narrative, I guess. I think it's an interesting layer about the story that the fact that every time a story about the Kardashian enters the public consciousness, it is also always accompanied about what's real and what's not, Mm. right? And I think most other times that's a very worthy conversation. But in a case like this one, I think we need to be smarter and kinder and more nuanced than that. I think compassion, as you say, is critical here. It's so, so important because how we respond, I think, to someone on a public level going through this will be paramount in setting an example moving forward for anyone who goes through similar things. Mm. Like I think we're setting a real example here in how we respond to this and it's so important that we have compassion and empathy. Yeah, and I think we're very, very used to dehumanising the Kardashians and perhaps part of that is of their own making. They have been involved in concocted stories for attention in the past. For example, the 72-day-long marriage to Chris Humphreys, probably was a PR stunt, probably was something that was manufactured for television ratings and for Instagram followers. But I think we need to be careful about treating this family like the family who cried wolf. And if there is someone who is struggling and there are four little kids involved in this, I think it's worth taking it seriously and at least not dismissing it entirely. Like I think the tone of some of the commentary on Twitter and the way that people are speaking about Kim Kardashian West in particular is disgusting. The top comments on the now deleted tweets from Kanye West, I was watching all of this in real time because I was so invested. So many people were sharing screenshots from her sex tape and were saying that Kanye West got sloppy seconds and all this other stuff about Kim Kardashian. And I just think the slut shaming that goes on with Kim is something that a lot of people turn a blind eye to and don't particularly care about when they wouldn't walk past that standard for another woman. It felt particularly unprecedented in the Mm. last week, the slut shaming of Kim Kardashian. Like I know it's a very pervasive thing that follows her now wherever she goes, but in this context it felt particularly cruel and particularly unacceptable and particularly pervasive again. I wanted to talk to you as well about the specific kinds of mental illness that we're talking about in this context, because I think when we talk about mental illness, we don't really talk about these kinds of mental illness publicly, do we? No, not at all. I think, I mean, I've always spoken about my anxiety on this podcast, and I think I probably feel empowered to do that because anxiety and depression are, in quotation marks, acceptable mental illnesses to have in the zeitgeist and I hate saying it like that I hate it but that is the reality of the situation that some people walk around with anxiety necklaces because it's almost for some people like a badge of honor Mm. unfortunately sometimes and I think it can kind of delegitimize how debilitating anxiety and depression can be as mental illnesses but unfortunately I don't think we bother to try to understand mental illnesses that are even more debilitating than anxiety and depression I don't think we try to understand psychosis I think we attach so many harmful labels to people who struggle with those mental illnesses. And I think ultimately Kanye West exhibiting the kind of behaviour he has over the last month or so has been 
really difficult for the public to manage. It's like, oh, we figured out how to ask, are you okay? We figured out how to talk about panic attacks, but we haven't figured out how to talk about someone who might very well not remember what he's saying right now. We, we don't know how to deal with someone who is experiencing mania. I think you're absolutely right. I think that we are getting much better at talking about anxiety and depression, but even still with those two, and I know you're much better placed to talk about this than I, but I I think even still we've kind of smoothed out the edges of those mental Mm. illnesses. Like we have tidied them up and made them look prettier than they are. And so I think even naturally when it comes to talking about something a little less straightforward like Kanye and bipolar, the messiness of it has taken us off guard because it's not something we've ever really talked about enough and we don't really know how to respond properly. Yeah, well, it's almost like we've Instagramified some aspects of mental illness. We make memes about it, we illustrate it, we kind of give it this fluffy, trendy edge. And I think when it comes to our conversations about mental illness online, they do tend to be myopic. And they tend to ignore people who are going through what Kanye West is going through right now. And I cannot imagine the struggle and the stress of watching your husband go through this in a different state to where you are when you have four little children to take care of. No matter what you think about the Kardashians, no matter what you have to say about Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, I think everyone in their heart of hearts can sympathise with what a tricky situation this would be for everyone involved. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that I can't stop thinking about at the moment is what do we try and learn from this? Because if we are setting an example for how we respond to things in the future, I wonder what it is that we take from it as people to be better people and more empathetic people and more compassionate people if people around us are dealing with the same things. I wonder if it's as simple as being really cautious with how we consider other people's social media activity if it does look like something that's very different to what we would post, that if we kind of stop ourselves before screenshotting something and sending it on and wanting to gossip about it with people in WhatsApp groups. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think I've been guilty of that in the past Mm. when I've seen something that has raised an eyebrow on Instagram or on Facebook, screenshotted it and put it in a group chat and be like, what is going on here? And often it's not out of malice because you don't normally think about it all that deeply in the moment. You just kind of go, what's going on? I don't really understand this. But I think if anything, the stories we've heard today, the plethora of DMs we got from shameless listeners about this exact topic, the experiences that we've seen play out in the Kardashian family has told us that sometimes there's something pretty dark going on behind the scenes and you treating it like a spectacle is not actually helping anyone. In fact, sometimes it's better just to know that maybe something's going on and hopefully that person is getting help and quietly swiping on yeah exactly and a big final thank you to every single person who reached out and trusted us with their stories Mm. i we could not possibly share them all today it just would have been a running endless list but thank you so much to people who helped us learn more about this and through their stories helped inform a lot of our opinions today so thank you thank you thank you and sorry we couldn't share them all today absolutely and thank you for listening to this episode i think that is all we've got time for if you guys want to weigh in on anything we talked about in today's episode as always head to shamelessthepodcast.com there is a hotline tab there you can record your message and send it straight to us and it might be on next week's show zara it just may this saturday is our second installment of the shameless book club we are of course talking about red white and royal blue by casey mcquiston that episode will also reveal august's book club book it will we've got lots of messages about that one so trust us it is coming on saturday in the meantime we are on instagram at shameless podcast and of course in our book club facebook group shameless podcast book club that is all from us meme war 2.0 bring it on yeah we'll see you there and otherwise we'll be back in your ears on thursday (laughs) bye bye
Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.